Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. All right, if you know me, you know my podcasting, my writing, my tweets at all, you know that I love housing policy. Emily Hamilton is one of my favorite thinkers, uh, writers on the subject of housing. She's at the Mercatus Institute, where she studies state and local government. Uh, she's got, you know, a real uh, a libertarian market urbanist perspective on this. I have learned a lot from her over the years, and I think you will too. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Emily Hamilton, is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Uh, she does a, a lot of stuff on state and local housing policy, which is a, a, a beloved topic of mine, uh, as, as Weeds listeners know. Um, and this has been a really sort of uh, exciting winter uh, in which we've seen a lot of state-level uh, legislative proposals come out on zoning deregulation. Basically, um, I, I know I've written about one bill that's in that's in Virginia, uh, but you were just telling me the stuff happening in Nebraska and, and elsewhere. Can you, what's what's going on? Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Matt. In addition to the Virginia bill, uh, just last week, a legislator in Nebraska introduced a bill that would allow for missing middle housing typologies. So things like duplexes, triplexes, small apartment buildings that have maybe four units in them to be built everywhere that single-family homes are allowed in the state in uh, towns that have at least 5,000 people. And we're also expecting a Maryland bill that would similarly allow for small um, multifamily types of housing to be built in parts of the state where transit serves people well, uh, as well as neighborhoods that have particularly high-income residents or a particularly high concentration of jobs. Okay, right. So the so the I mean these are sort of two well not contrasting, but like slightly different philosophies. Obviously reflects the different situations. I think if you uh, tried to change zoning near transit in Nebraska, uh, <laughs> you, you're not gonna you're not gonna get a lot done that way, right? Exactly. Uh, do they do they have a big housing affordability problem in Nebraska? Actually they do. Omaha and Lincoln have seen pretty rapidly rising prices in in recent years. Uh, And um, they have about 40% of their renters in Omaha are cost burdened, meaning they spend more than 30% of their income on rent each month. And I imagine Omaha's existing sort of built environment has a a lot of single-family land to it, right? I mean, it's it's a city by Nebraska standards, but not like— you know, a, a towering metropolis. That's right. Uh, primarily single-family housing for sure. Although since the financial crisis, like the country as a whole, <laughs> Omaha has seen an increase in multifamily permits. Right. But so so broadening out the sort of scope for, for doing that in, in Omaha and Lincoln would make a would make a real difference. Yes. Yeah, so that's cool. And so the, the the Virginia bill, which was interesting, I, I first read about this in an article uh, a friend of mine wrote that that quoted you. Um, the idea here was to say you could build duplexes uh, basically anywhere all throughout 
all throughout the state, uh, which was interesting. Um, just the sort of lack of targeting at all in in that vision, um, which on some level sort of appeals to me, but doesn't seem to be where most politicians have have taken this. Yeah, Delegate Samira in Virginia has two bills, uh, one that would allow duplexes across the entire state, as you say, um, on all land that's currently zoned for single-family housing, and another that would allow all single-family homeowners to add accessory dwelling units. So they're both bills that would essentially allow people to go from one unit to two units on single-family zoned Mm -hmm, land mm -hmm. across the state. And as you said, unlike what we've seen in in California or um, what we expect the Maryland bill will look like, the Virginia bill is very broad, has no focus on transit or income or any other factors, but just allows two units um, across the entire state. I think that actually makes a lot of sense, particularly on the ADU side, because housing affordability is a problem in rural and urban communities in all parts of of the state. And ADUs can be a really flexible housing form that a homeowner can build for, say, an aging relative or an adult child who's moving back home, regardless of where they live. Yeah, so ADUs is an interesting idea that I think I haven't uh, had anybody on to to talk about. But California has made big ADU changes in recent uh, years. And and I think that has given people the sense that this is maybe uh, lower-hanging fruit you know, politically than some other stuff. So what, what does this mean, like an, an accessory dwelling unit? It's a, I, I think that's not like a term regular people use in their lives. <laughs> Probably not. An accessory dwelling unit means a an additional home uh, that's on a homeowner's uh, property or, or a landlord's property in some cases that uh, has its own kitchen and bathroom and is – distinct from the the principal dwelling. Uh, But it can be um, a basement apartment. That's the most common type of accessory dwelling unit in D.C. Or uh, in Los Angeles, we're seeing a lot of ADUs being built that are uh, garage conversions or just separate backyard cottages that can be uh, rented out or given to a family member. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I am actually the the owner of an accessory dwelling unit. Uh, very exciting stuff. And and so in D.C., what's, what's common, right, is a lot of the neighborhoods are these kind of four-story row houses. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can build them to be a or they're, they're like three stories in a semi-basement, if people are not familiar with, with D.C. Yeah. Um, and so you could have the whole four stories for your family. Uh, another thing you see is a lot of them are cut to be like two two-floor units, mm-hmm. right, that are either condos or, or rentals. Uh, but then another common thing, like my house, is you have the top three floors are usually where the homeowner and his family lives, and then mm-hmm. there's a basement that rents out uh, to, to other people. And that's at least the the spirit of the accessory dwelling unit, is that it's like a basement or it's a garage. It's some part of your house that you have then renovated to have its own entrance, its own kitchen, its own sort of supplemental thing. Um, people sometimes call it like granny flats and mm-hmm. with, with the idea that it would be a, a family member. Um, but these bills have, they don't actually require that, right? I mean, the, the idea is to, to use the concept, but really just to generate extra rental housing. That's right. Uh, some jurisdictions have 
kind of outdated accessory dwelling unit language where they'll say it cannot be Mm -hmm. rented out. It can only be used for guests or your au pair or maid or (laughs) whomever you might want to live at your house. Um, But these newer bills that are focused on allowing a new path for relatively affordable rental housing – do, don't require them to be free. They can they can be rented. Right. And one thing that um, the California experience has shown is that it's important not to have owner occupancy requirements for the principal house mm-hmm. in, when allowing accessory dwelling units because that makes it more difficult to get financing hmm. for them. Because if the homeowner were to foreclose and the bank were to own the house, they wouldn't then be able to rent out the. Oh, okay, 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 yeah. So, so yeah. This, is, this is an important nuance, right? Okay, yeah. so so one way you could think about it, right, I, to set it up, like the big picture is people are looking to find ways to increase the supply of housing right. that does not freak out the public too much, right? Mm-hmm. And so, okay, if you're a homeowner, you should be allowed to convert your garage into an apartment. That sounds pretty nice. Um, most single-family homes are owner-occupied anyway. So maybe we can stipulate, okay, the owner-occupant needs to be living in the main dwelling. Right. But the problem is you want people to be able to get loans mm-hmm. in order to do these conversions, And the bank, the reason you can borrow money for home renovations, for mortgages on relatively affordable terms, is if worse comes to worst, the bank can take your house. Mm -hmm. And those renovations have then added value, so it was safe for the bank to make that loan. Right. So so a normal, you know, construction loan process is like the loan officer, they they look at your plan, right? Does this make any kind of sense, or is he just stealing my money? And they say, no, he's renovating the house. And so either he'll pay the loan or else we'll get the new renovated house. Right. But because the bank is not an owner-occupant, it can't lend you money to build an ADU if when it forecloses on you, it then can't rent it out. Right, right. Homeowners may be able to get a cash-out refinance Mm -hmm. or a home equity line of credit to build that ADU without um, having the ADU as as collateral, but that that serves the bank, um, but it, it definitely makes it more difficult. Right. And the the Virginia bill would preempt um, owner occupancy requirements from the outset. Right, and so and so that makes it easier for people to to sort of go do them. And the appeal of this, I mean, so these these kind of units they tend to be small um, and relatively cheap, as well as just supply makes things cheap. Uh, but also, it doesn't. It doesn't change the sort of look of things that much, right? Right, right. Typically, if it's a backyard cottage, you might not even be able to see it from the street. Uh, D.C.'s basement apartments look the same whether or not they're being rented out as as separate units. So they're, they're a very mild way of, of allowing more housing to be built from a visual perspective. Right. And the, and the Delegate Samira's bill, the, the duplexes bill— even is is sort of the same in that regard, right? Like he's not changing the rules about what kinds of structures you can build, just saying that it could be a two-unit rather than a big house. Is that right? That's right. He would leave it up. His bill would leave Mm -hmm. it up to localities to determine things like setback requirements. So that's how far 
the house or duplex can um, be set from the property line, how many feet that Mm -hmm. has to be, as well as things like design standards and parking requirements. Right. So in some ways, that's a more limited, it's a very broad change, right? He's not limiting it to particular areas, but it's a sort of modest tweak in in some ways, right? It's not like you could... The idea is that, like, like neighbor in in a practical sense, neighborhoods would not necessarily wind up looking very different under that rule. Yeah, that's right. It, w- it would really be up to the local rules how much uh, change in aesthetics mm-hmm. would be allowed yeah. under it. And I think the experience with California, because California now there are a lot of new ADUs being built, right? But it actually sort of – they passed a bunch of different laws before that happened because you, you can you can do one regulatory change, but local governments have a lot of discretionary powers that they can sort of swoop in and, and start using unless you sort of keep knocking it down. That's right. Particularly in Los Angeles, there are quite a few accessory dwelling units being built. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple thousand a year seems to be the current rate. But that's only recent. Yet the first state bill that attempted to make homeowners be able to build accessory dwelling units in California was passed in 1982. <laughs> but it's taken several bills to actually make it feasible on a broader scale. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I thought about that when when I was reading about um, uh, the, the, the Samira bill in Virginia, because if you leave parking requirements in local government's hands, they can pass a law that says, well, you know, you can build a duplex if you want. The, the state requires that. But you need 12 parking spots. And then— so then you can't actually. That That's very true. And particularly when we're talking about accessory dwelling units, these are something that homeowners are building. These are not development mm-hmm. professionals. Uh, they're typically a very marginal decision that's only going to make sense for the homeowner if it's very clear they can make money by mm-hmm. putting this <laughs> investment in. And uh, construction costs in high cost of living cities are are very high. It's difficult to make it feasible and make it worthwhile to build accessory dwelling units that are profitable. So when local governments come in and say you have to build an extra parking spot, you have to pay a $20,000 fee in order to hook up your accessory dwelling unit to utilities, these rules that might seem pretty minor can almost eliminate the feasibility of accessory dwelling units for homeowners. Right. And so it comes down to both, like, do the local governments, like, actually want there to be more housing? And then secondarily, if they don't, like, can the state, like, take several bites at the apple until, you know, break break the will of sort of NIMBY local governments <laughs> and make them give in? Yeah. And it seems like that's what started to happen. And, in, in, like, the local Los Angeles political culture is very hostile to housing co- compared even to the other big California cities. But it's like yeah. enough new ADU laws were passed that now, now they can't stop them. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> so, you know, so, I mean, so it's, it, it's interesting to see sort of um, other states start to get start to get interested, but it'll be it'll be kind of a, a long journey. Okay, uh, let, let's take a break, and then, then I want to talk about uh, some, some of your new research. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. 
We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So I've had a number of uh, guests on the show, I think, uh, talk about housing. I think mostly from a sort of left liberal perspective, although everybody, I only allow people on here who think we should have more houses for people. Um, you come from more of a, a free market uh, institutional background, uh, ideological background. And so I know one of the things you've been working on is inclusionary zoning regulations, uh, which have become, I think, pretty popular in liberal areas of the country. Um, and I've always sort of wondered, you know, like, what, what does inclusionary zoning mean? Like, like, how does this work? Yeah, so the term inclusionary zoning indicates that it's intended to be the opposite of exclusionary zoning. Mm -hmm. Exclusionary zoning are all the regulations that make it difficult and expensive to add new housing. So minimum lot size requirements, single family zoning, those are all types of exclusionary rules. Inclusionary zoning either requires developers to build a certain percentage of below market rate units as a component of a new housing project, or tries to incentivize them to build some below market housing requirements through density bonuses. Most inclusionary zoning programs have a density bonus component. Mm -hmm. So say a developer wants to build a 100-unit apartment, the locality might say you can build a 120-unit apartment, but 30 of those new units have to be subsidized for people Mm -hmm. making a certain amount of income. And so, I mean, basically this is, I guess because nobody wants to raise taxes, this is sort of an alternative um, to having an explicit, like, tax and then the government would create subsidized housing is to say, okay, landlords as a— not. Builders, Mm -hmm. as a condition of building, need to sort of take the loss on creating a number of subsidized units, and and that 
is supposed to generate affordable housing and also market rate housing. Yes. Yeah, that's right. The idea is that it allows uh, more housing as a whole to be built, uh, but requires that some of that housing is subsidized. And that's meant to answer the sort of objection that, oh, all this new stuff, that they People are building luxury units. New housing is more expensive than old housing. This isn't doing anything to help the people who are really in need. You say, okay, here's like a direct benefit, right? We have X subsidized units coming on as part of this project, so it's good. Right. But is it good? Well, so I studied inclusionary zoning in the Baltimore-Washington region, Mm -hmm. where uh, about uh, half of the jurisdictions, about uh, 20-something of the jurisdictions in the region have inclusionary zoning programs. And I find that the mandatory inclusionary zoning programs can be expected to increase market rate home prices by about 1% per year that program is in place. So that's a pretty significant increase in market rate house prices um, to when compared against the relatively few units that inclusionary zoning programs have produced. Okay, so it generates new sub-market units, but it mm-hmm. raises the price of market rate housing. Exactly. And is that because less stuff gets built because you have to pay for the cross subsidy what's the what's the mechanism so one thing that developers say that that's borne out by my research is that under inclusionary zoning programs they can only build very high end new homes that are able to subsidize those below market rate units uh, and in order to take advantage of the density bonus sometimes developers are moving from a walk up building to an elevator building which is much more expensive to be built so under the inclusionary zoning program they're building a very high end new market rate homes um, in order to allow for the below market rate units to pencil out and the housing market as a whole becomes more expensive, even though a few new units are uh, at below market rate prices. Right. So if you try to think about this mathematically, right, it's like the structure costs a certain amount to build and then there's going to be an average rental income. Like right. across the structure. And if you say some share of those units have to rent out at a very low price, that creates an incentive to push up the the, the price that you need. So so when people say – right, people sometimes get obsessed with like the high-end finishes and, and whatever else. But it doesn't – it further doesn't make sense to just sort of build like blah – housing, if some of it is going to have to be rented out at a loss, then you need to sort of make it up by making the fanciest thing you can think of. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And the optional programs that I looked at in the Baltimore-Washington region are also really interesting. Uh, There are nine optional programs across the region, but only two of them have produced any units. That's Alexandria and Falls Church in Virginia. So what makes an optional inclusionary zoning? So under these programs, developers don't have to provide below market rate units, but they can if they find that the jurisdiction's density bonus makes it worth it. So if the density bonus is worth more than the cost of providing these units, the developers will say, sure. Okay. Um, And and both the Alexandria and Falls Church programs that have produced a few units under these programs have 
produced about 100, so not not a lot by any stretch of below market rate units. Uh, And these are two jurisdictions that otherwise have very exclusionary zoning. It's uh, very high-cost jurisdictions that are close to D.C. and offer lots of nice quality-of-life features. Um, but it's very difficult to build housing in in either place because of lots of single-family zoning and lots of historic preservation, particularly in Alexandria. I mean, I guess the issue there is it's going to come down to how big is the density bonus, like, actually. That's, that's one piece of it, but it's also how— uh, Overall exclusionary mm-hmm. is the jurisdiction zoning policy. If you have a jurisdiction where home builders can build as much housing as is profitable, that ex- that density bonus doesn't do them any good. They're already building as much housing as they want to. Sure. But if you really ratchet down the amount of market rate housing you allow to be built, that density bonus can become very valuable because housing is so constrained and prices are so high as a result. Right. So, I mean, it's a, it's a question of, like, the, the delta, right, between, like, what's the existing regulatory constraint and what are you actually allowed to do as a, as a bonus. So, I mean, in theory, you could take, like, the most exclusionary part of a metro area and say, as long as 10% of the units are affordable, you can build however densely you want. And that would probably generate, like, a lot of affordable units. Right. Yes, but that's not how it's done. It's typically pretty minor <laughs> right. um, density bonuses. Right, right. But, I mean, that's just to say it's like people sometimes ask me about inclusionary zoning, um, and, I, and I never know what to say because it uh, – well, A, because I haven't <laughs> researched it in detail, but B, because I always tell them, like, it actually depends, like, like what you do specifically, right? Like what I just sketched out, like that would be inclusionary zoning. It's just nobody does that. Right, right. right. Like that, that – that's not – like the actual intention, I think, of these programs. Right. I am very cynical about local policymakers' intentions with inclusionary zoning programs. They allow policymakers to appear as if they care about housing affordability and are doing something to improve it without reforming their exclusionary zoning rules that are causing the problem in the first place. Right, right. And and I mean, you know, and I think you saw a version of this um, in New York when when Bill de Blasio was first elected. And I think he thought his administration seemed to take at face value um, community complaints about development in New York where people say different things about why they don't want new housing to be built depending on where they are and what's considered acceptable locally. But if you go into like a very blue city – and um, you want to build stuff, and people need to give you reasons why you shouldn't be allowed to, they will often say that they would be more open to your development if there was more affordable housing. And I just feel like the experience that they had there in New York with inclusionary zoning and and, and proposals like that is that that that's not actually true, right? Like, when when you come in with, like, sure, we're going to greatly increase density, but some of the units will be subsidized, like, that, that doesn't, like, suddenly transform it and everybody's happy. Right. Sometimes from there, the argument moves to we only want 100% affordable housing right. uh, or or in other uh, directions of, of <laughs> concerns about new housing. Right. It'll go higher and higher. And it's, you know, it's different, right? I mean, if you come into like a Republican suburb and you say like, well, we should build apartment buildings here, people will just say like, no, we don't. We don't want that to be allowed. Right. 
Um, uh, but like in in like big liberal cities, people give you a lot of fake reasons. Um, and then and then you know, I don't know. You know, it's like again, like in theory, you could do it, right? Like in the most exclusionary places, like you could say, like yeah, like we're gonna have we're gonna have inclusionary zoning, and just like then you can do. You know, go nuts, build everything. Um, but but in practice, they're not generating. Right. And as you said, one thing that's appealing to local policymakers about inclusionary zoning is that they don't have to spend any tax money on it. There are no fiscal trade-offs being made. But if they if it's worth having this these mixed income buildings, it's worth paying for with tax dollars. Uh, and it wouldn't, in that case, then have to be in new construction buildings. Localities could uh, purchase condos or give tenants income to rent apartments in what would become mixed-income buildings. But they uh, generally prefer to go with the tax-free option. Right. And I think it's a good it's a good test of, like, what's really at issue here, right? Because if you—when you do things— through regulatory mandates, you get a little bit of what you mandated, but you also just get less construction. And oftentimes that can be the the reason. It's like you don't you don't really want the community benefits. You want developers to say, no, I'm not gonna provide the community benefits, and then you don't give them permits. Right. Right. Just a point of clarification. In my study, I actually don't find a significant effect on the construction side. Mm. I just find that it's a tax on on housing that seems to be borne out through higher uh, construction costs. Okay. Uh, but other research on inclusionary zoning has found both that uh, the programs have reduced building permits and led to higher prices. Okay. There you go. All kinds of it. Right. And so if you you know if you say like look we want to create more affordable housing, housing, it's going to cost X dollars. We're going to—I mean, you could raise taxes. Also, allowing market rate construction increases your tax base. Right. Absolutely. Right. So it's it's not it's not a problem um, if you're sort of willing to accept that. Um, but but people generally aren't. So who has, who has like, the worst inclusionary zoning law that oh, you've found? That's a tough question. Um, <laughs> Harford County in Maryland has a mandatory inclusionary zoning program with no density bonus, so they're not trying to offset the the cost of providing the below market rate housing units at all. Um, so that's that's a pretty bad one. Okay. <laughs> the, the other thing that I saw, I used to live in a in a condo building in D.C. that was built under an inclusionary zoning rule. And then they were having this weird, I don't know, weird, but it was like, because it was a condo building, they had to get uh, tenants who could buy the condos, which meant they had to get people who could get loans from banks. But also, it was supposed to be for poor people who, I, I mean, if they could get the mortgages, like they wouldn't be qualifying for the program at all. Right. Um, and so it was just it was vacant for years. I mean, eventually they they got somebody into the units, but it was a very strange kind of situation. And I think genuinely not what anyone like intended from this system. Right. The owner-occupant inclusionary zoning programs are difficult, and so they require someone who has enough money to purchase the condo but a low enough income to qualify for the inclusionary zoning program. So oftentimes these are people who perhaps have a trust fund and a low-paying, you know, job in the arts or something right. like that. Not the, not the 
people who we should be most concerned about being able to afford safe housing. Sort of intended beneficiaries um, of these things. Okay, so what what would be a better thing for jurisdictions to do? Like, say, say you do. You are on the city council. You are very worried about housing affordability. Uh, you you want to do the right thing. What what should you do? Focus on ensuring that more housing is is being built and that lower cost typologies are being allowed. So missing middle housing, like we we talked about earlier, is typically the the lowest cost mix of land that's shared across multiple households, but also isn't as expensive to build as high-rise apartments or condos, uh, and then subsidize those households that need it with money, not Mm -hmm. through weird regulatory programs that have, at best, ambiguous effects on affordability overall. Okay, so let's talk about construction costs and and missing middle, uh, because that's not—I think that's also a term not a lot of people— no. Um, so what's what's the middle? What's what's missing about it? So missing middle housing is anything uh, that's between a detached single family home and a large apartment building, typically an elevator building mm-hmm. is, is where the cut point is. Um, so that could be an accessory dwelling unit. It could be townhouses. It could be uh, walk up apartment buildings. And these these types of homes are are much less expensive to build than uh, high rise apartments on a per square foot basis because they're um, typically stick built, which means they're not um, dealing with um, steel construction, which is more expensive, and they don't have elevators, which are expensive both just to build and because they're taking out some of the space in your building mm-hmm. that can't then be used for housing. Okay, so basic single family home in America is built out of wood. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's wood frames. Um, big apartment buildings are steel and concrete. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and big apartment buildings have elevators. Single family homes don't. Um, and so so the missing middle. Right. It, to think about it, it's, it's not a single family home, but it's probably built out of wood, doesn't have an elevator. Right. Right. And so it's cheap like a single family home, but uses land efficiently like a taller apartment. Yes. And that's right. and that that's why it's cheap, right? Basically, and I guess it's probably even cheap. Right? I mean, is this like less walls in a small yeah. apartment? I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, you, um, yeah, you're you're sharing a wall, you're sharing a roof, um, and they're more energy efficient, also for that reason. Right. So that's the sort of cheapest type of per unit to construct is like a, like little apartment buildings um, or townhouses, uh, th- things like that, and and we say. Missing middle because um, it's become typical for cities to require single family like almost everywhere and then have like a couple like signature development projects where huge towers get built. That's right. And um, it's uh, partly just a factor of how much land is is, um, designated toward multifamily housing. If you have 2% of your jurisdiction that's where multifamily housing can be built and you have high costs, that land is definitely going to accommodate as as many apartments as the developer can pack onto it. Whereas if you allow for multifamily housing to be built across the jurisdiction, we'll tend to see more of a mix with high-rise developments where land is most expensive, but then missing middle being built in places that are a little bit um, less expensive. And I think the fact that missing middle housing is missing itself generates a lot of sort of misperceptions in people's minds that you'll say like, 
it's something I, I'll hear often about Seattle or Washington, D.C., um, other cities that do have a, a substantial sort of tower building happening. It's sort of like this crazy construction going on, quote unquote, everywhere. And then, of course, you ask them, it's like, well, like, how much of the city has big apartment towers being built? And like, yeah, of course, actually not that much. But it's like you can't even conceive of what else could be happening in neighborhoods that like aren't central enough to to have that kind of thing. Right. I I live in Arlington, Virginia, which I think is the, the poster child for missing middle housing because it really has allowed a lot of high-rise construction along um, its metro line corridors. Uh, I live in one of those buildings, and um, it's it's really a national model for that type of transit-oriented development. But Arlington's single-family neighborhoods have accommodated basically zero housing. And we're seeing a lot of single-family homes in the county being replaced by new, extremely expensive single-family homes. Um, Whereas if Missing Middle were allowed, we would see those um, older single-family homes being replaced by duplexes, townhouses, uh, maybe even, um, you know, mid-rise apartment construction when a builder can assemble a couple of single-family homes together. Yeah, Arlington is crazy and a great example of this. So this is, you know, the sort of closest-in suburb of D.C. Um, when Metro was being built out, um, Metro's new, unlike, um, you know, New York Subway or, or Chicago L. It's built in the 70s. Um, and a lot of the suburban jurisdictions wanted to build it as kind of like commuter rail style, uh, running in medians, park and rides. Uh, but Arlington was like kind of visionary. They, they said like they will pay the extra freight to tunnel it Mm -hmm. under Wilson Boulevard. Uh, The stations are closely packed. And then they rezoned, uh, like, where the stations are. And so now if you you ride the metro to Clarendon and you come out, you'll be like, this isn't the suburbs. Um, There's, like, tall buildings around. Uh, But then if you walk, like, 10 minutes perpendicular to the metro line, it's it's really the suburbs, right? Yes. And you've got home, you know, single-family homes that cost, ton of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, if you poke into them, if they're older, uh, they're, like, not that fabulous or anything, right? Just the land is really expensive. Right, right. right. So one thing you could do with that expensive land is put, like, four, like, okay houses on it, right? But that's yeah. not a lot. That's right. Yeah. And that's why, because the land is so expensive and people who can afford to buy a single family home in Arlington have a lot of money, that's why we're seeing brand new homes replacing older ones. Right. And so it's the the other alternative. I mean, which is fine, right? I mean, it's it's people like Dylan Arlington, if mm-hmm. rich people want to move there and buy old houses and replace them with super expensive houses, like good for you. Right. But like another natural thing to do with expensive land would be to continue that process that you see right next to the metro station and, you know, elevate, right? Like, parts of D.C. that aren't right by metro stations are still pretty dense. Right, right, yeah. D.C.'s row house neighborhoods are still uh, fairly dense and walkable, uh, but Arlington's really missing that that in-between density. Right, so that's, that's like, that's the missing middle, and that's also, in principle, it could just kind of be, like, scattered around, right, in a I guess, like, not super principled way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, a, like a big suburb could just have 
some quadplexes hither and yon. Right, right. It would tend to happen gradually as uh, as a homeowner decides to leave the county, that individual house will be replaced by something a little bit denser. It won't be entire neighborhoods at a time. Okay, let's, let's take a second break, and I want to bring this back around to, to state-level action. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So I guess, you know, we, we didn't talk about this at, at the beginning, but like, why is state government important to this whole question? Because we've been talking about zoning. Uh, this is something local governments do. Uh, we were talking about Arlington. You know, they've made the choices they've made. A little bit idiosyncratic. Definitely not the worst uh, of any place in the country, even if it's not ideal. So like, why, why do states want to get involved in this? Yeah. Housing affordability is a huge problem across not just uh, coastal jurisdictions that tend to get the most attention, but in all kinds of cities um, and rural and, and small town areas across the country. I'm most optimistic about this problem being solved at the state level rather than through local reform or through federal incentives to improve. And that's because localities get their authority to regulate land use from their state governments. Mm-hmm. So states setting limits on how much localities can restrict housing development are on, on very solid legal 
ground. Uh, and they have better incentives to create pro-housing policy than local governments do because the cost of, of building new housing is born extremely locally. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have a, a new um, new house or a new large building going up next to you, that construction is annoying and it does last a while. Um, and then the parking and new new neighbors um, are, are also costs uh, borne by the people living right next to the new development. Right. I mean, this is where the the phrase, not in my backyard, comes Absolutely. from. You say, like, look, I'm all for we should have more affordable housing. But, like, literally, if the housing is on my street, mm-hmm. then it is harder to park my car. Right. There is more traffic right here, right? And mm-hmm. it's not like a – it's not like an ideological question, right? It's just, like, literally true that mm-hmm. if more people live – right where you live, that creates certain practical logistical problems for you. Right, right. And because the status quo bias in housing is enormous, people tend to focus on only the negatives of that Mm -hmm. new construction, not that their best friend might be able to move in (laughs) next door or that their neighborhood retail will be more likely to be able to stay in business with a few more neighbors uh, supporting it. Uh, But at the local level, because the costs of housing are so localized, you can get mayors who say, we don't need any more people here. We don't need any more jobs. We don't Mm -hmm. need any more property tax revenue. We're fine the way we are. But you're not going to find a governor in America who's going to say, I don't care about job growth in this state. You know, Mm -hmm. every every governor, uh, every um, state policymakers, by and large, support growth, support economic growth development and support a growing state. So policymaking at the state level is is where um, those costs can be put in perspective and the benefits of allowing new housing to be built are more widely recognized. Right. And I also think from a sort of business perspective, right, I mean, if you're an employer in some metro area, uh, it's probably bad for you if housing costs for your staff or potential new staff are, like, through the roof. Uh, but yeah. it's, you also don't care at all, like, about which particular town mm-hmm. that housing might exist in, right? So there's, like, that that potential voice, right, like a, like a, like a business voice for growth doesn't manifest itself at the local level in any kind of reasonable way, right? Like, right. It, it, it would, like, genuinely not make sense, right, for the CEO of, like, Enormous Corp to, like, be worrying about what some particular suburb is doing. But if the state legislature is considering a bill, right, that will, like, greatly – will make it much easier to recruit people, like, that's something they might actually care about. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, and and I think it's been I, – I don't know, like, how, how much um, – how much progress do you think we we can really see in the states here? Because it, it does seem also, like, pretty new, right? I mean, I, I feel like three, four years ago, like, there was nothing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, a few years ago, I was much more pessimistic about the potential for housing reform than I am today. Um, I think that, as we talked about earlier with California's accessory dwelling unit, experience, it's going to take time for states to pass all the laws that are going to to be required to get rid of um, huge barriers to building Mm -hmm. new housing. Um, But I 
I think it will be really interesting to watch the experience of Oregon, which passed a law allowing missing middle housing in much of the state last year, um, to see how much effect that has alone and what barriers remain. So something that's been interesting to me is that I think a lot of what you have have seen done so far. I mean, the the Oregon bill definitely sort of had a had a foot pretty firmly planted in the progressive camp and sort of came through as part of a package of housing reforms that included a, a rent control law. Vaughn Stewart, who's talking about introducing a, a zoning reform bill in Maryland, like he's a very left wing guy, um, I think had an Our Revolution endorsement uh, when he first ran for that seat. And again, like wants to package this with a lot of other progressive ideas, tenant protection laws, you know, you know, things like that. Um, and it strikes me that it would be more straightforward in a lot of ways for a deregulatory initiative to be a conservatives to the middle idea um, rather than a, a odd left hodgepodge. Um, and and I, I wonder, like, what's your perspective, you know, coming from Mercatus as to, like, like what, what do you think's going on there? That is a really interesting question. Uh, I like to say that, that um, housing doesn't follow partisan lines. <laughs> yeah. there, are, there are plenty of, of Democrats and Republicans who support allowing more housing to be built at lots of price points and Democrats and Republicans who, op- who oppose that. <laughs> Um, I, I do think the the Oregon model is really interesting that it um, was able to succeed as a combination of of deregulation and uh, tenant protections. Ibrahim Samira's bill in Virginia is also part of a package of of housing bills. Um, and if you know, say like in Oregon, a mild rent stabilization law passes with a law that allows more housing to be built, um, I think that's that's a, a worthwhile compromise for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it seems perfectly reasonable to me. It's just, it's also, it's been strange uh, for me to watch that play out. That is, that is not what I would have predicted the sort of outcome uh, w- would be. And I, and I, yeah. and I wonder um, how to go, you know, cause it's interesting, right? So, cause what Oregon did was it was a, it's, I think a, CPI plus seven percent mm-hmm. uh, rent control cap, right? Which, uh, I guess, from a from a free market perspective, in principle, uh, it's not like that idea. But that's a pretty loose cap, right? Like, right. like in a practical sense, right? Um, whereas, like Bernie Sanders has a proposal that does have a significant, actually, regulatory reform element, but would have a very strict rent control. At which right. point. Like, it's not clear that the regulatory relief would accomplish anything. Yeah, that's right. Some of these uh, Democratic-led housing bills have gotten a a lot of attention, deservedly Mm -hmm. so, uh, because they're being introduced in very high-cost states. But there have also been uh, some red state moves toward preempting local land use regulations. My colleague at Mercatus, Salim Firth, has written about some of these. Um, Arkansas, for example, passed a law preempting local design standards, which is really important because when you're in a place where land isn't super expensive, the way that you exclude lower-income people from living in your jurisdiction is by doing things like requiring brick siting rather than vinyl siting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Arkansas said— we're not going to allow design standards that aren't related to health and safety 
So this is like in Arkansas, like almost all the land in Arkansas is cheap. Um, Mm -hmm. But you can say, well, you can only build fancy houses, basically. You can only use expensive methods. Right. Um, And so so they're knocking that all out. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. And and in that case, it's more of a straightforward deregulatory move Uh um, supported by uh, people who support free markets and housing, by home builders, by by realtors. But in in blue states, the the coalitions include the the left. Right. I mean, I I feel like the the, the winner, the the dog that keeps not barking in in this is the uh, state legislature of Texas, um, which I feel like as a dispositional matter loves overriding blue city laws there. I mean, Texas is unusual because unlike, I I mean, every state in America has like its more conservative parts and its more progressive parts. Mm -hmm. And the progressive parts are usually the cities. Uh, But Texas has really big cities and mm-hmm. it's still a very conservative uh, state. And like Austin now has become a very expensive housing market. And I was just looking at it and it's like, even like Dallas is like not not what it used to be right. in terms of affordability um, as, it, as it's grown. Uh, and even though te- Texas is a very sort of sprawl friendly regulatory environment. Um, so you, you know, you, you could find some place to build houses, but the infill Rules um, in in Dallas uh, and in particular in, in the the Dallas the sort of fancy northern suburbs there are actually quite strict um, and there, there's a lot you could do to deregulate. Yeah, Texas last year did pass a shot clock bill that requires localities to give builders a yes or no answer within, I believe, 30 days. Oh, that's a um, good idea. Yeah, so that's that's <laughs> um, an important step toward reducing the. Um, time that it takes to mm-hmm. get housing approved, which is a really costly process for um, developers and landowners because yeah, they're yeah. sitting on a loan the whole time that they're waiting for um, for their project to be approved. But yeah, Texas, uh, particularly in parking requirements, mm-hmm. that would be a, a huge step toward allowing uh, more housing to be feasible to build. Right, because parking requirements are a kind of it's sort of like back door prevents you from building townhouses in in a lot of situations and and right. small apartments. Right, right. Yeah, Houston has done a great job of, of making infill development mm-hmm. feasible. Um they've reduced their minimum lot sizes down to uh, 1450 square feet. So that um, has made it possible to replace uh, single-family homes in desirable close-in neighborhoods to be replaced by three townhouses. Uh, but their parking requirements mean that the the ground floor of all of those is typically a two-car garage, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't make a very um, attractive uh, yeah, they're really, ground floor. Yeah, they're really weird-looking, those the yeah. Houston townhouse neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. And, and it also takes up valuable living space as mandatory car storage. Right. And, you know, and I think um, we, we were talking about uh, Missing Middle, and, and to, to my mind, I, I, I go now like twice a year to Austin for— various reasons. Um, and, like, that is really a city where you see the the missingness of the missing middle. Like, everybody's perception is that there's, like, an insane construction boom. And it's true. I mean, there, there are lots of cranes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, still the bulk even of, of Travis County is single-family homes by law. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're getting more and more expensive. And there's lots of places where, you know— small-time people who know how to do construction could be building small multifamily units instead of just select portions of downtown getting 
these like incredible towers, right? I don't know if that would qualify as keeping Austin weird or whatever it is people <laughs> want, uh, but it would be it would be different from what's happening now, which is like the construction of this like stark dichotomy between like a gleaming tower downtown and what's going to become like incredibly vanilla suburbs. Right. Right. Yeah. And and we were talking about the um, objections people raise to new housing being built. In Austin, a big one is that people don't want trees to be cut down in their neighborhoods um, for aesthetic and environmental reasons. Mm -hmm. But it's much more environmentally friendly to cut down some trees within the city of Austin to make room for more housing rather than having people uh, having to live farther out and commute much farther in. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, infill is always— I mean, I, I guess every every lost tree is a tragedy. Uh, but but infill is inherently less environmentally impactful than you know growth of the developed area. And I mean, I I, I can never tell if people mean this stuff in good faith or not. But there's like a huge difference between a quote unquote green space and like a forest, right? <laughs> They're yeah. like why there's, there's no wildlife, you know, like living in your two trees in your backyard, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, okay. So I, I always like to close these things out uh, by, by asking the guest, um, hey, what did I miss? What what should I have asked you here? What what do people need to know that, that hasn't been in the show? So going into a little bit more um, detail on the million different ways that localities can stand in the way of housing, mm-hmm. uh, some uh, New Jersey towns are a really interesting example of looking at what jurisdictions can do to make housing feasible or unfeasible under roles that look very similar. Um, So Palisades Park, New Jersey, is a really interesting town that has two-family zoning and has seen the majority of their single-family housing stock be replaced by duplexes that have uh, parking at the bottom and then two attached homes above. But other jurisdictions that also have two-family zoning in New Jersey have done it in ways that appear as if they allow it to be done but don't actually. So they so might what do they, do? they might require um, the the two homes to be only up down duplexes rather than side by side duplexes, which makes them more difficult to condo um, and it uh, is just a less appealing way to live uh-huh. for a lot of people because you have upstairs noise from your neighbors. Um, so it, it really depends on the sentiment of hmm. the policymakers, uh, if they're going to create rules in a way that allow lots more housing to be built, or if they're um, going to create rules that appear as if they're allowing more housing to be built without actually doing so. And this is also just why, right, in general, I I mean, you know, I I don't need to convince somebody from Mercatus, um, but, like, there is real value in just, like, having less strict rules, even if it's not obvious to you, the person reading it, like, what difference does it make if you allow up-down versus side-by-side? Like, it turns out there is a difference, right? Like, it would be hard for me to judge just looking at, like, a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of different provisions, like, which ones are important and which ones aren't. But, like, it's easy to say, like, is this a bona fide safety requirement or not? Right, right. Yeah, or is this resulting in um, in places with high land costs getting more housing, right. <laughs> or yeah. not? Yeah, yeah, and that's right. That that was the other thing is that I I think at some point you know if you are interested in these different sort of incentive ideas, which some people are, I, I think you need to try to base them on outcomes rather than on regulatory 
inputs. Because that New Jersey example is a great one, right? It's just like, it's really hard to say, like, like what's going to matter. But you can tell, okay, duplexes are getting built here and they aren't there. Right. Right. Yeah. And if, if policymakers want to create an environment where more homes are allowed to be built, that's really the metric they right. should be looking to. All right. There you go. Okay. Thank you so much, Emily Hamilton, Mercatus Center. Thanks to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, our producer. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.